You're listening to a Discourse ZA production. I'm Byron Williams, and we're back with a small print. And today, my guest is Russell Lamberti. So, to start off with, we always ask our guests to please introduce yourself the way you would like to be introduced. <laughs> Thanks, Bronwyn. Um, yeah, I, I'm a professional economist. I live in Cape Town. I'm a family man. Um, I think a lot about the state of the world and how kind of great and messed up so many things are. Um, uh, I am soon to be moving to a new role at Saka Licha. So I've been a, advising professional investors for about 15 years or so now moving into a different role uh, at Sarkelicha in September. Sarkelicha is a business advocacy group in South Africa, really working towards um, an overarching goal of, of uh, creating the institutional groundwork, laying the institutional groundwork uh, to allow businesses to, uh, to state-proof them, themselves effectively. So it's really interesting. It's intellectually you know, quite fascinating what we're going to be doing, working with a great team over there. So it's quite a pivot for me in terms of what I've been doing so far. But my speciality really is is macroeconomic strategy, monetary policy, monetary economics, the intersection between that and I suppose um, politics and culture and, and society. So, and I have broad interests beyond all that stuff in terms of, you know, theology and, and sociology and just how how the world kind of generally all fits together in this very complex puzzle. So that's sort of me in a, in a very imperfect nutshell. Well, that's what economics is, right? So, I mean, it is looking at human behavior. It's the sum total of all of our choices, whether they are good ones or bad ones. I think that economics gets a lot of a bad rap for trying to, people have an assumption that economists impose economics onto society rather than using economic tools as a way to hold a mirror up to society. And there is a bit of a conflation there between the more normative and positive sides of the industry, which we'll get into. But I always like to stand up for the profession because I think economic tools have got too bad of a reputation in a marketplace that could really deal with them right now. And the reason why I invited you on the show is because at the moment we have inflation and rumors of inflation, much like we've always had wars and rumors of wars across society. And it seems to be that whole concept of inflation is back on the table. And it is quite a polarizing topic for some reason that the world seems divided, at least those that do play around with sort of financial Twitter and social media, that it's the pro-inflation crowd and the anti-inflation crowd. And people think it's quite a dangerous thing that we are heading into territory that could be quite destructive of wealth and other people that are brushing it off as being something that's that's not, not going to be a problem for our generation, that we can kick this can much further down the road. So I invited you specifically because a couple of years back, you wrote the book, which you can actually see behind you over there, Money Destroys Nations, which is a fascinating read. I would recommend people do go and read it. It's got lots of very quotable one lines that you can just put way straight into your own Twitter feed. And of course, that talks about extraordinary levels of hyperinflation, like what happened in Zimbabwe. That is an abnormal case. Most instances of hyperinflation don't get to quite that point. I think what, what was the, the total amount of inflation that reached there in the, in the early noughties? Something like it's, uh, it's, it's an unmemorizable number. number. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
like what is it eight zero nine nine zeros percent? Yeah, it was. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 you know heptillion or septillion or something. It's it's not septillion ish percent. Beyond, which is just, it's beyond know, comprehension. Yeah, beyond, beyond <laughs> a certain level, it it, it doesn't even matter. Uh, it's, <laughs> the money's becoming worthless. That's the bottom line. Yeah, <laughs> uh, the the money it destroyed itself and then proceeded to destroy the nation. So perhaps we can start off over there with. What is your perspective right now? Because a few years on from when you wrote that book, and finally now we're getting some inflationary figures that are coming out of the data, coming out of particularly the United States. I'm not sure if it's quite reflecting to the same degree in South Africa. We've always had a slightly higher general basic inflation level. But what do you think? Are we reaching a turning point? Are we heading to a new era of monetary policy that we're going, not just the policy, but, but monetary experience that we're going yeah. to have? Is inflation something that global citizens should be concerned of? That's really any marketplace that is connected with the magical dollar and its magical mm. monopoly money. And from a then from a local perspective, is it something that South Africans should be concerned about? And if so, why? So if you could answer that question both ways, from the global dollar perspective and from the local yeah. rand-based perspective. Well, I mean, right off the bat, you've hit me with a, a huge poser because this is very much the raging debate amongst financial professionals right now and and really kind of across all sorts of spectra in society so um it's not an easy one and i could probably babble on for 20 minutes and not really give you a, a definitive uh, answer on it <clears throat> but i mean let me just reflect a little bit on what you said in the preamble to your question um and then kind of segue into into trying to stab at, at an answer to this question you you pointed out that what happened in Zimbabwe is an outlier, is a very extreme event. And I think that's an important point to make because what we don't want to be doing is finding hyperinflation under every, you know, carpet. Uh, we, we want to, uh, or under every bed. Um, we want to be judicious in the way that we, that we perceive the risk, in the way that we uh, assess the risk of certainly hyperinflation, but even just very high inflation. Um, it's very important for people to understand that to achieve sustained high rates of inflation requires very deep uh, political dysfunction. Um, ultimately, when governments control money supply, um, and when, you know, once you understand that, that money supply is the, is the fountain of inflation, it's where, it's where it originates from, um, then you, you start to be able to piece together the kinds of conditions that foster um, prolonged high inflation. When you get into very high inflation scenarios and, and ultimately these sort of ridiculous hyperinflation scenarios, what you're looking at there is the, essentially the corollary of ab abject political decay and corruption. Um, so you must understand just how uh, broken Zimbabwe's political system <clears throat> had become. Uh, the same is true of Weimar Germany, right? Um, these places became deeply, deeply dysfunctional. Um, and they, I mean, that, that's a chaotic process that can give rise to all sorts of, you know, interesting scenarios. In Zimbabwe's case, interestingly, and quite rarely in some ways, the, the regime basically was able to sort of sustain and, and carry on through, through the hyperinflation. Um, but the result was, was essentially mass 
uh, uh, exiting a mass exodus of skills, which has effectively broken the country uh, from a long-term perspective. In in the case of Weimar, um, you you got the 1930s and the 1940s uh, as the sort of uh, consequence of of that uh, disaster, which we all know we don't need to go into what happened there. So. Um, these are, are incredibly chaotic events. Now, the reason why we study them, I think, and, and I'll draw this into the question now, is, is not because we are trying to um, predict ultra chaotic scenarios all the time, but the, the, the very uh, extreme scenario is a brilliant archetype um, for us to start drawing lessons about the effects of inflation, about the social effects of inflation and about how inflation is caused. And I think that's where the value of studying a place like Zimbabwe really comes in. So when we look at the world right now, um, I think we can intellectualize this debate, you know, till the cows come home. And there's lots of good reasons um, for being skeptical of the rapid onset inflation view. Okay. And one of the reasons for that is that we do have a system of immense leverage in our banking and financial systems. And that's always prone to kind of collapsing in on itself a little bit. It's, it's a little bit of a precarious uh, uh, network of, of debt, okay? And when you have that, you, have the, the, you, you always have the risk of um, a sort of what we call a debt deflation where people default on loans. There's a sort of calling in of credit by banks as they seek to shore up their balance sheets and, and, and uh, restore their sort of capital buffers. And um, so the deflationist argument is always essentially around this, this overarching structural uh, reality of our system right now, which is that it's, it's built on a huge house of credit. And when you start sort of chopping the legs out from underneath that, it can kind of collapse in on itself a bit. And that you know, when we start seeing financial dysfunction and financial crises, 2008, the COVID uh, uh, situation, which was obviously not a, at, at its genesis, a financial problem, but then spilled over into the financial markets, you see these deflation effects showing up very rapidly and very quickly. Um, and, and so a year ago, we were in a kind of deflation, prices were, were falling. And I think it's this lingering concern about about the uh, collapse of of leverage and about the precariousness of this let's say to some extent a house of cards of leverage that that sustains this deflation argument um the the inflationists are looking at um, a whole bunch of other areas that are really concerning them now more than than has done in, in in the recent past the obvious one is we've locked the world down and so we've you know, taking a sledgehammer to supply chains, to to productive potential, and so we're curtailing supply in so many in so many areas. If you look at purchasing manager index PMI surveys, the one thing that stands out absolutely clearly is that um, the the supply constraints and and supply side price pressures are immense. If you look at uh, freight data uh, and shipping uh, container pricing data, you've just got a huge shortage um, of, of uh, shipping space uh, going on at the moment. I think shipping prices, depending on the metric you're looking at, depending on the index you're looking at, are up anywhere between five and sort of 10 times the level they were at just about 12, 18 months ago. So just an enormous 
inflation in in supply side costs so so it's there's no great mystery as to why that's happened we've we've shut large parts of the global production system down across many many countries and most of the countries that didn't have major shutdowns aren't particularly highly productive nations as far as the global stage is concerned so a lot of african countries didn't shut down but not much production happens out of africa um, and so that's that's the one thing we've done on that side and then on the demand side we really have printed a lot of money across the globe the united states federal reserve has obviously been front and center in that um, the 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 quantum depending on the money metric that you're looking at is probably in the order of about six or seven trillion dollars added to global money supply um, you know which is which is a very very big number it's something like 40 percent year-on-year growth in the money supply now immediately we, we must just quickly say that um, when you get hyperinflations the sort of quantums of money supply injections into the system are of many orders of magnitude higher than that right a 40% money supply injection is very, very big. No question about it. But it's not something that necessarily must elicit hyperinflation. The other mitigating factor there is that there are ways in which um, that money supply expansion can get sort of absorbed away from, from manifesting in goods and services prices. And obviously, the, the most obvious way that that happens is that it gets absorbed into asset markets. Okay, And so that's, I think, where we're seeing still a lot of the inflation it's also spilling into commodity speculation so we're seeing house prices i think it was in in the netherlands just to take a very random example dutch house prices are up about 20 percent year on year okay from what is almost certainly an already uh, very expensive level i doubt property in holland was cheap before COVID. Um, now it's just gotten 20 percent more dear and um uh, you're seeing, so you're seeing house price speculation, you're seeing equity price speculation. So inflation in many ways is everywhere, okay? Everywhere you look, I think you can just about see inflation uh, in commodities and it's starting to seep now into goods and services prices. And it's more than just base effects from, from last year. It's, it's, it's actually something that's coming through. No one's really denying that. The debate is how long is this going to persist and how long is this going to last? Now, just to finish the, the the question on the US and on the global perspective, I think I think that one's got to be careful not to get too bogged down in trying to predict where this is all going to go. I think you've got to use tools that give you a fairly clear perspective on the short-term horizon. You've kind of got to play it as it lies. And certainly from an investment perspective, you've got to iterate just as you go. Right now, inflation is there. Um, it's manifesting and it's manifesting for very good theoretical reasons. We've curtailed supply and we've printed money, right? So there's not a whole lot of goods and services coming on stream. And there's a lot more money chasing those goods and services, if you like to, to put it in good old Ecos 101 terms. Um, and so the inflation is, is, is certainly there. Now, here's the crux of this, of this inflation deflation debate, and I'll sort of wrap it up. Else we'll get too geeky. Um, the deflationists are expecting this sort of credit implosion or this this managed sort of credit deflation uh, situation over the next few years. Um, but I think what they're underestimating is the is the decay that we're seeing in the political system that starts to align incentives towards what we call monetizing that credit structure. Okay, so you have this precarious credit structure that can deflate.
But if you, if you print money and essentially monetize that debt, if you monetize government debts and if you monetize lots of private sector debts, it stops being able to crash in on itself and implode. You actually fill it up with real money, okay? And that's basically where a place like Zimbabwe ended up getting to. Zimbabwe had a normal functioning credit-based banking system. It had big deflation events that were then filled up with printed money. Um, and so you essentially get rid of the debt deflation risk by monetizing that credit, okay? And I think that's the cycle we're on. Um, I think you can see it. That's precisely what QE is. That's what the Fed buying, you know, private company bonds is. Um, that's what all this stuff is. And that's also what starts to happen when you start getting um, checks in the mail to households, right? You start essentially uh, papering over all this, this credit structure. The helicopter money. Correct. And you start, you start creating these sorts of inflation risks. And I think that the deflationists, whilst they could certainly be right for short periods of time as we go through these gyrations, um, I think what they're missing is that the severe extent of our deflation potential is precisely actually what's driving politicians and central banks to push exceptionally hard against that. And I think that if they continue down that road, they can basically always win. The inflation outcome can always prevail because they just have the printing press. So I think we're in an inflation world. I think, I think we're in a world of of uh, increasing scarcity and, and the money creation is not going to just end by the central banks. They're, they've got ongoing political incentive to, I think, keep printing money. And I haven't even begun, Bronwyn, to talk about, and, and I won't at this juncture, but we, we haven't even begun to talk about um, green new deals, the anti-fossil fuel stuff, um, all, all the stuff that is essentially anti-growth or what you might call degrowth, the kind of degrowth yeah. idea. And that, that sort of degrowth stuff is, is hugely constraining on the supply side. Um, and I'm not convinced, all things considered, that we're moving into a period, at least for a while, of particularly impressive um, technological growth or technological um, advance. Now, I think that there's a ton of interesting and fascinating technologies, but I'm not convinced that at the margin we are making the big kinds of technological strides um, that would typically be uh, uh, associated with deflation or disinflation in the good sense, in the sense of making stuff more efficient, more you know, cheaper and so on, in the way that like creating railways across America was a, just an enormous uh, uh, improvement upon, you know, horse and carriage across America, right? Um, and that's the kind of, you know, fairly epic technological changes that that I think we probably um, have, are, are not seeing at the moment. I think we, we, we probably overestimate because it's such clever technology that we have today, we might be overestimating its marginal benefits to us. Um, so that's something we could debate and talk about. Um, yeah. As far as South Africa is concerned, what's so fascinating right now, this might be an interesting little tidbit for people watching is that as far as I can tell, inflation risk looks a lot more um, pressing in America than it does in South Africa right now. Um, American money supply growth is a lot higher. Um, the RAND has been on a pretty strong run, which kind of diminishes import, import costs. It doesn't mean that those risks are not lurking for SA. We're running a big fiscal deficit, which can prompt our politicians to start meddling with the central bank. Very tempting. That road, very, very tempting and something we've got to keep a super close eye on. But right now, when you, when you sort of look at the, 
the, the broad span of things based on our kind of historical experience with inflation. South Africa doesn't seem like it's primed just yet for, for a bad inflation outcome. The real inflation risks that I can see actually do emanate predominantly from the United States. And I think what's really fascinating about that, and this is where I'll close my answer, is I think that has a kind of political corollary. I think what we're seeing in America is a sort of the politics of inflation really heating up. And that's what MMT is about. That's what this kind of real leftward shift is about. That's, you know, Biden, the sort of managed president by the Democrats, very much shifting towards this very populist inflationist type thinking. Donald Trump, in a way, was the start of that, actually. You know, so this, this, there's kind of this like bipartisan consensus on this. Trump ran huge deficits, was not scared of debt, as he boasted, and printed lo lo you know, loads of money under his tenure. And I think with Biden, it's actually ratcheting up rather than ratcheting down. Yeah, that's a very interesting point. But let's talk about what inflation really means, because I know people's eyes glaze over when you start throwing economic terms around, particularly people who aren't like us that actually like reading this sort of stuff and looking at the yeah. charts and numbers. Yeah. It's not for everyone. I think there's two points I wanted to pick up on, on what a world of inflation actually does. I think that there's a misconception that inflation is just about stuff getting more expensive. That's not even entirely true, because what inflation really is, is distorting the marketplace so that some things get more expensive compared to other things. And some people get richer out of the process compared to other things. Money is just money. It distorts market and, and allocates real market assets, but it doesn't actually have intrinsic value. That's the whole point of money. And we can get into the crypto conversation a bit later because that's got a slightly different spin on it. But money as we know it is not real goods and services. It's a proxy for the distribution thereof. So in an inflationary environment, some people get richer, some people get poorer, some people benefit, some people don't. And it happens in different waves and stages. And you might be winning today and losing tomorrow, as you cover very, very nicely in your book. You know, exporters and importers, one's laughing while the other's crying. But someone is getting richer and someone is getting poorer. So it's got distortionary effects. And in a world where inequality right. is trending upwards, that's something we should be concerned about. And then from a slightly more theoretical level, what inflation really does when you talk about the biggest distortion that you get is that it is in essence an expropriation of real value from the private sector towards whoever gets to print the money, which in our current economies would be the nation state that has the monopoly over the printing press and the monopoly over the guns and the men with guns to enforce the sort of belief yeah. in that currency itself and that buy-in into that system. So what are your thoughts on the distortionary effects of inflation? In other words, the real effects mm. of inflation, as yeah. in who are those winners in this particular mm. cycle and who are yeah. those losers? And I think mm. the MMT question is an interesting one there. We have had guests on the show before that unpack that and are actually quite pro the MMT idea. And of course, everyone's entitled to their opinions there. Mm. And there are people that will win from that sort of process because that's what happens when you mess around with money. You create new winners and new losers. Yeah. And the new winners will, of course, be quite happy with those sorts of policies. So as always in any sort of crime, and that's kind of what it is because it's stealing from some and giving to another, you want to follow the money. Mm -hmm. So who stands to gain from a more inflationary, and you were talking about the dollar, so let's talk about that perspective. Who in terms of which sectors of the private sector economy, who in terms of public sector versus private sector, and who in terms of which nation states win and which ones don't? So I think as an emerging market citizen, a lot of people watching yeah. this 
should be more interested in what the dollar is doing because that mm. expropriation isn't just from the private sector to the public sector. It's also from certain geographic territories yeah. towards others. So I'm not going to put ideas in your mouth. Maybe you yeah. could give our listeners a more educated opinion on who that is. Well, look, got the motive. Yeah, you've, you've set that up superbly. And a lot of what you've said there, um, I would struggle to say better. You, you know, they're, they're, I once wrote an article um, a good number of years ago now, and I think it was called something like inflation is a wealth redistribution scheme. Um, so yes, uh, money gets printed, prices go up, but really um, inflation is, is, is a system of, of political privilege, political and, and kind of corporate crony privilege. Um, and as you pointed out, whoever, and this is known as the Cantillon effect, uh, named after an economist called Richard Cantillon, whoever gets to print the money first and use it first gets to get the stuff, right? Um, if you and I could sneak into a basement, print up a whole lot of money, print up a billion rand each, um, that no one knew where it came from and I suppose packed it in a whole bunch of suitcases. We could go out and acquire lots of stuff, right? Bronwyn and Russell could go and own farms. We could own factories. We could, you know, do all sorts all of things. stuff. All the things. And, and really, uh, and if no one uh, knew how we came about um, that money, we can essentially just uh, steal stuff from people and it looks voluntary it looks it looks all above board as well which is particularly pernicious. it was just trade exactly so hmm. so um that's that's the essence of of why inflation is is such a problem um this the, the the secondary stuff is also very important which is that because of that and when it's done on a wide enough scale so if you if you and i did it with a billion rand each in in a in a in an economy like south africa or like the united states it would actually just about go unnoticed. Um, but when you do it on massive scale, it starts to have really big distortionary effects um, on, on all kinds of markets. Uh, it starts to, I mean, one of, for example, one of the, one of the chronic problems of, the, of having the banking system set up in the way that it is and being a sort of, I suppose, fountainhead of, of inflation um, is that you have major distortions in real estate markets, okay? And, and, and over long periods of time, you get, a, a, you know, considerable um, uh, over-allocation of wealth into real estate. So you've got lots of people sitting with most of their wealth and most of their savings in their house, you know, which um, I think historically speaking uh, is, is a major distortion. I don't think it's normal. Uh, that everything is riding on your place of residence, which in the final analysis is really just kind of a long-term consumer good. Uh, but we've turned it into kind of a piggy bank and investment, a retirement policy and all this kind of stuff. So real estate, is, <laughs> yeah, so real, real estate is one example where, um, where you have significant distortions. So who's benefited from, from that kind of long-term process? It's, it's people involved in that sector. It's people who are willing to, to leverage, to, to go into debt to, to own houses, it's real estate developers, it's banks, you know, it's, uh, it's that whole ecosystem that has tended to benefit in that way. You know, uh, if you have not borrowed to buy a house, let's say in the last 20 years, um, and you know, you've really struggled to, to kind of keep up with the Joneses, right? 
um, people who've who've gone into debt, ridden those waves, been part of these big bubble cycles. Um, uh, I mean, they can also be prone to crashing and and sort of losing everything. But but once you get on that on that rung, uh, you can do exceptionally well. So the so the beneficiaries of inflation are the already connected, the people who can access credit, the people who know how to play the game, who can go and get banking, bank finance, who can, you know, buy houses, who have paychecks already. Um, and the people who lose out um, are the people who, who can't do that. And that cuts across a whole bunch of things. One of, one of the gaps is generational, right? I mean, younger generations have really struggled to get on the property rung. Uh, property prices for a young, let's say, 26-year-old, couple who's just gotten married who wants to buy their first house versus the same equivalent couple in the 1970s i mean the the relative cost of housing uh, for those two different uh, couples is is enormously different uh, it's extremely expensive now um, but there's another point there i'm just going to jump in because i think it's interesting yeah. to add to this conversation around who wins and who loses it's not just that older generations didn't have perhaps as much debt that inflated and inflation that inflated house prices themselves they're also now competing with a different sort of investor. Sort of a couple of generations ago, you were competing with other retail buyers of property to own a house. And very now what you're point, starting yeah. to see is the very big investment companies and investment banks are buying up residential properties as investments. And of course, investment banks are closer to that tasty, tasty money tap, right? That's so a there's a, I'm, I'm so, so I think you, that's worth interjecting just in that little. No, sort of well, I, I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad you've raised that because it allows us to kind of then sh show how that housing market uh, then mm. links into this broader uh, sort of uh, let's call it money tree uh, sort of process. So, so someone, you know, so, so whether it's BlackRock or some other massive investment fund. So what's going on? You've got we central got banks, <laughs> you've got central banks who've, squashed interest rates down to zero or close to it, um, printing huge amounts of money. So, so bond markets and equity markets inflate to levels where um, the return from them just, just disappears. So prices go up and the yield you earn from those investments falls towards zero. But of course, your clients who are, who are savers and investors with, you know, in your firm or your shareholders, they need income. They need return. This is, you know, we're not here for for fun. We had to earn some money. We had to earn some income. We, we're saving for a purpose, and so these funds then go prowling around for where they can find income, where they can find yield, and they are essentially in the process. And this is what this is doing: this this uh, incessant money printing and inflating of multiple asset bubbles is causing in big investment firms to go on the prowl and and squash returns everywhere, everywhere else, right? Or to extract returns from other places until they've been, until they've been dissipated. So, so a, big, uh, a big investment firm will look at residential property, will look at a portfolio of, let's say, a thousand homes, and will say, right, if we, if we buy these thousand homes for a few million rand each, that's X you know, billion rand that we're going to have to pile into, into this investment, this is the kind of rental yield we can get from this investment minus, you know, some default risk, blah, blah, blah. We're going to clear 5% uh, rental yield. And uh, what's the bond market giving us? It's giving us, you know, 1% over the same term. 
and uh, or less in many countries and what is the equity market giving us very little and very volatile and so on so you got these guys now piling into houses and precisely as you say i mean they get they get preferential funding these these are huge firms connected to banks connected to investment banks in the banking system and central banks finance these firms through essentially money printing and manipulation of rates and so you have an absolutely distorted system and this is what is really uh, to be blunt, pissing people off, right, is that you're getting this enormous concentration of wealth and real economic power. This is this wealth redistribution scheme that inflation effectively is. So it's, a, it's an no excellent point. No or nothing, we'll be raised. happy. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's this idea that there's just going to be some sort of big oligarchical custodian, uh, custodianship thing going on where they, they own <clears throat> and control they might not even call it ownership because it might be politically sensitive, but effectively neo-feudalism. It, it is basically. a kind of, it is like that. And I, and I, you know, I think, I think it's the problem is, is that when you raise this issue with a lot of, let's say libertarians or, or free marketers, they're kind of like, what's the problem? You know, these are private companies who. But they're not would, funded by private enterprise. They are funded by a corrupt system, which is, which is socialism, but coming at it from a very different way. It's like the worst, right. worst of both communism and capitalism. I think that from someone like myself who does tend to skew quite libertarian, but not enough to actually put the capital L on my head. Yeah. There, there are things to be said that some of the ideas behind communism are quite lovely, looking after each other and all of that. In practice, it doesn't work out that way. Likewise, some of the ideas about capitalism, about free markets and free trade are great, but in practice doesn't always turn out the way it does on paper. I think what we've got at the moment is this bastardized system of the worst of both worlds. So you've got sort of, you know, socialism for the rich and capitalism for the poor, which is a, which is a joke. And that's why we can't find middle ground across political ideology, because we have the worst of two imperfect to start off with systems. I think, I think what you've called this in the past is 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 financial socialism and i think that's a pretty good moniker for for the sort of system that we're living in it's um it's sophisticated socialism it's refined it's not the it's not the boorish type where you go and run and and take over factories and kill capitalists you know you just infiltrate these commanding heights um like the central bank like the treasury um, and you start being able to fuse these things together in very cryptic, insidious, kind of pernicious ways that most people can't diagnose. Um, and, and I think, I think this, is, this is it. This is critical stuff that's going on right now. Um, when, you know, it, the analogy, like, so, so to call these things free markets and to sort of excuse behavior because it's quote unquote free. Anything but. <laughs> would, would, be, would be like... Um, you know, it would be like someone changing the rules of a sports match. Uh, so now in rugby, you can pass the ball forward, right? Um, and then let the players go and do what they do. And you've got all sorts of crazy stuff going on. They're all, they're obeying the rules. They're, they're working within the structure that's been set up for them. The problem is that the structure is completely distorted. But it gets um, worse than that. I mean, what we're seeing now in essence, when you start talking about the fact that the government is the monopoly over printing money and has the first drink at the fountain, what you're in essence seeing is the referee getting on the field, right? And then still making the calls while they're there. So I think there's also that that's to be noted, that this is talking about 
more competition with the, the people who get to control the policies with the people who have to yeah, abide by the policies, correct. which is yeah. obviously perverse. <laughs> yeah. So, so you've got, you've got this, this major revolving door situation where, where, you know, private business owners and, and shareholders are able to influence regulators, regulators in turn are able to set the rules in, in various distortionary ways. And I mean, to, to see that this is, you know, a, a huge uh, problem from a, from an equality perspective, from the perspective of concentrating wealth and power, from the perspective of just pure justice of how markets are supposed to work. And, and from the perspective of how we are creating uh, this undeserving, in many instances, oligarchy. Um, now, here's what and elected, you can, undeserved, yeah. And here's what you can then throw into the mix. And this is really where it gets quite spicy is that the man on the street hitherto has struggled to diagnose all this stuff. I think that's changing. I think that, that the, the, the way we've started, the way we've been able to democratize knowledge and insight over the last 25 years or so through, through the web and through all the you know, amazing information technology that we have, um, people are starting to put the puzzle pieces together. It's not clear for everyone and it's not everyone agrees on, on exactly the, the sort of diagnosis of the problem, but it's interesting. I think you're starting to see a coming together of traditional left and right on a lot of these issues, right? There's a lot of people who would be traditionally left-wing or traditionally on the left or traditionally kind of socialist. And then a lot of people who are traditionally, let's say on the right or libertarian, and a lot of them are starting to find common ground because hang on a minute, there's like this superstructure oligarchy here that's actually, um, uh, you know, being unfair to all over. of us. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 100%. And so, um, you know, that's, that's a really interesting political dynamic for me. And I think it's one of the explanations for why political maps are being so redrawn in such confusing ways for people, right? So you've got like the, the sort of landslide for the conservatives in the UK amongst traditionally labor constituencies up in the north. Um, I think that's a symptom of this. I mean, there's, there's other cultural Kind of dynamics to that as well that we could, could get into but you're seeing a similar thing in the us you know a it's been pointed out that a, a sort of diehard trump fan and a diehard bernie sanders fan you're probably gonna they're probably gonna they're probably gonna line up on like 70 or 80 percent of, of things you know um so so this to me is is creating a, a real cauldron of backlash um, and I think we're living it. I, th I, think, I think we're living that in all sorts of ways. Institutional trust is evaporating because of this. It's becoming impossible to hide these sorts of injustices, right? We've got such, despite all the distortions and the censoring and the, and the blocking and all this kind of stuff, the internet's in a very, very powerful truth-finding machine. And um, you've got this stuff essentially being laid bare for most people. Um, and so that's a very interesting one for me because I think it's starting to crack this nut open a little bit and it's starting to, to lay these things bare. And just one area of that, imperfect and messy and sort of complex as it is, is cryptocurrency, right? Yep. Whatever you want to say about it, it is, a, it is an attempt and certainly at this stage, a growing and, and seemingly increasingly successful attempt to, um, to wrestle back monetary 
sovereignty back to the individual, back to the community, back to the corporation. There's all sorts of ways in which the state is going to react to that. Central bank digital currencies are the obvious kind of one line of defense where that's going to, where that's going to come in. And so we're in, a, we're in a kind of monetary warfare now that's very different to what we've seen through, through historical epochs. The, the old stuff was, was one superpower trying to usurp monetary control over another superpower. And when it moved from Britain to the United States, I suppose that was kind of a transition between allies, a sort of more peaceful transition between the two of them, although it took a couple of world wars to get there. Um, but now we're kind of seeing a monetary epochal battle less between states. Um, so I think the China, Russia, America currency axis is interesting, but I think it's less interesting for me than, than, than the decentralized, centralized currency fight that's going on. That to me is, is extremely interesting. Um, and in an inflationary world, yes, the, the winners, uh, when there's, as long as there's asset price inflation and as long as central banks are pumping money into into the financial sector, bailing out banks and all that kind of stuff. Yes, your winners are kind of obvious. It's these big institutions, these big centralized uh, uh, financial institutions. Um, but there's two ways in which I think power is going to be wrestled from that. The one is the one is the cryptocurrency revolution. That's going to be super messy. That's not going to be quick. That's a you know it's already ten years old and it's going to be another twenty to thirty years of of unfolding. Okay, yeah. and the first first internet what was in the 1960s right and it only becomes like an adopted thing really globally in the 2000s effectively so so these things take time the second dimension on which i think power can be sort of wrestled away from the oligarchs is when inflation escapes the asset markets okay and this is not something that can be easily controlled by the the, the string pullers at the top okay this is a chaotic system it's a complex system so most of the inflation of the last 20 or 30 years has, been, has gone into asset markets. House prices have far outstripped wage growth. Um, equity markets have far outstripped wage growth and so on and so forth. I think that there is a kind of inflation that can start to reverse that. Okay? I think inflation can actually escape asset markets. It can find its way into commodity speculation and into goods and services prices. And all I would say about that is while it, it, for a lot of people, at, particularly at the bottom, that's going to feel very nasty, okay? If, if milk prices, you know, double in six months or what have you, these, these are not nice, um, nice things. That's a bit extreme, but I'm just sort of saying. Um, but what you can start to get, and this is interesting, there was an article posted on Twitter, I think it was by CNBC or Bloomberg, that one of the benefits of inflation is going to be that wage growth picks up. And it's sort of been very vilified because it's very tone deaf because actually, come on, there's no benefits of inflation because the cost of living goes up. So if, you're, if your salary is going up, but bread prices are going up, you aren't really benefiting. That's true. Um, but... Who gets the raise first, right? <laughs> so who gets the raise first? Um, I also think that the inflation that can, that can flow into goods and services is not is really an overdue uh, fruit of the policies that have been followed for very long that have been creating these major distortions, right? So it's actually a rebalancing process. Now, I'm not naive enough to think that in that rebalancing process, when asset markets collapse or, or let's just say stagnate, 
and goods and services prices go up and wages and salaries go up and so on. I think that is actually going to benefit, uh, going to have some benefits for the man in the street. I actually do think for certain people, that's going to be the case. It's kind of a, it's kind of a normalization, a bit of a correction from these insane asset price inflation periods that we've had for the last, you know, 20, 30 years or generation. However, um, elites are very wily and they're very smart and they're very connected and they don't like to lose, right? There's, there's status to be lost. There's lifestyle to be lost. There's all these things. And so um, as, a, as a backlash to that, you then can get all kinds of additional distortionary policies that, that, that sort of come in. So that's a messy future. And I, I, I think that the next 10 years at the very least, the 2020s, to me, um, beyond it, if we get through it, I think can look really, really fantastic. But I think the 2020s itself is, is a bit of the, the valley of the shadow of death, right? I, I think, um, I think it's going to be messy. I think it's ugly. I think it already is ugly. Um, everyone's fighting with everyone. Politics is an absolute mess. Geopolitics is probably, you know, the least stable that we've seen it for a, for a generation or so, or, you know, certainly since the end of communism, um, things are, things are very, uh, uh, unstable. Things are very uncertain and trust. I think he has the key points is tr institutional trust is just about evaporating, just about evaporated. No one trusts anyone when it comes to health, public health, um, money, finance, you know, general information dissemination, it's all up for grabs and it's all kind of in dispute. And so um, what's, the, what's the takeaway here? I look at all that, Bronwyn, and I kind of go, when the world's gone through similar gyrations, what we might think of as like fourth turning periods, turnings, yeah. right? turnings. Um, we don't know how they're going to pan out. We don't know easily who, who's going to win on the other side of that, right? It's easy sort of to say, well, China wins on the other side of this, but like maybe not, you know, this is, this is a complex, very complex kind of process. So we don't know who wins on the other side. Um, what we do know, we can, we can draw some historical principles. We do know that these periods tend to be scarcity inducing, right? Because things are not just smooth. We don't just have nice peace and prosperity and easy production conditions and so on. So, so I think scarcity is a big watchword that people have to real have to scarcity, real like scarcity over the, the real things that you really need. Yeah, yeah. I agree with that thesis. I think that's pendulum's going to swing back the stuff you need water, food, yeah. Yeah. power. And, and, we know this all too well. <laughs> correct. And, and so, and so, so it's a world of real scarcity and it's also tends to be a world um, of monetary corruption, monetary distortion. And so the, the combination of those two is that these sorts of periods tend to be inflationary. They also tend to be conflict periods. So wars can happen. I think the kinds of wars that we're staring at are probably underway already. Uh, there's, there's a huge kind of cyber dimension to that. Um, there's, a, there's a major information propaganda dimension to all of that. That's, that's, we're in that. That's, that's happening right now. Um, and again, I think that induces scarcity because if you think conflict, about it yeah. at, at, at a very meta level, yes, conflict, but also signal distortion, right? So one of the things that markets really rely on, right, is clear signals, right? For me to produce, sell, trade, I need 
I don't need perfect signals because there's no such thing, but I need like relatively clear signals, right? I need my prices. You need confidence be- that your choices are going to pan out and to benefit your future. So if Correct. you don't have and, confidence, and- you get inertia, then you get disinvestment, and, and it- which is a vicious cycle in and of itself, which sort of perpetuates your expectations. So yeah, if confident, yeah. without confident expectations, mm-hmm. things fall apart. And and that gets informed by clear signals, right? In a, in a very Hayekian sense, like we need we need these price signals, we need good interest rate signals, we need we need good feedback from reality, and yeah. and the abs- the abstractions that we that we get from reality need to be reasonably accurate, right? Uh, in the form of data, in the form of information, in the form of kind of all these things. When you have major information scrambling going on, when you have major policy distortion price manipulation, but then also actual information scrambling, which we very much have right now. Um, how do you act? How do you act confidently in such a world now? So at the margin, I, I think, I think investment confidence has to subside, has to, uh, has to be curtailed. Um, and, and just gen, just generally the, the confidence to act with a future orientation has to diminish. And so, and so you get what is called a raising of time preferences or a shortening of time preferences that diminishes investment, diminishes, uh, diminishes community formation, diminishes mm-hmm. the ability to, to say, Hey man, we're going to build a school because we really believe in the future here. You know, everyone just kind of, everyone tightens up, everyone goes into their shells in a way. Lockdown is like a, like this, this very representation of what's going on it's like this very tangible representation Mm -hmm. of our lives actually getting smaller travel restrictions travel you know vaccine passports um all kinds of things where you can see a a physical manifestation of this sense in which we're actually turning inward and 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 getting less expensive Um, now we could debate, we could have a three hour discussion another day about some of the cultural implications of this, the, some of the, some of the healthy stuff that, that can be entailed in, the, in these kinds of trends to more localism. Maybe we, maybe we overextended ourselves from a globalistic perspective. All these things are you know, up for discussion. But what is certainly true is that the near term effects of this are you know, tremendously disruptive. And surely from my perspective, disruptive to to productivity in general. And that means uh, a world of greater scarcity. Um, uh, and, and the only way to really kind of mitigate that, if I'm right, so that it doesn't spiral into, into, a, into a world where, where living costs just absolutely run away from us, is the, is the effectively the same thing, which is that we, we, we make our lives smaller in response, right? So we're not producing as much stuff. We're not as we're not as wealthy. We're not as abundant. Life gets more expensive to do all these things, and so we kind of just volunteer voluntarily choose smaller lives. And so we feel like things are okay. We feel like living costs are not running away from us, but we've we've crimped our, our expenses. We've we've made our lives smaller. We don't have. Yeah. that holiday what to our parents switch. had we don't have what our older siblings had we, we well, don't, it's okay it's okay because we, we yeah, have it's okay we, we 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 tell ourselves you know we, we we've got <laughs> we, we don't have a speedboat but but we've got like really cool apps on our phone you know so it's fine you know we can we we've got fine, all these uh amenities yeah. creeps up on you slowly right i mean it's if, if it happens if your erosion of your life's 
living standards happens over a long enough period of time, we can justify it. We can tell ourselves stories about how it doesn't right. matter. And in fact, we'll tolerate it as long as the people who are on the same level of us to start are falling with us. What we yeah. won't tolerate is for our nearest and dearest to get richer while we get poorer. And that is something that I want to talk about today because I have a sort of visual concept of a sort of line that was drawn through society over the last 18 months. And if you were on one side of the line, you got richer over the course of COVID and lockdowns and everything else. And if you were on the other side of the line, you got poorer. But that line didn't cut neatly through a class or through a particular strata of society. It sort of wove its way in between families, in between friendship groups, in between people in different industries. And I've definitely seen in my circle of friends, I think I've got a more diverse circle of friends from a socioeconomic and sort of career perspective than a lot of people do. But people on one side of the line, that I'm just on the other side of the line, you had people that are now calling me and asking me for if I can give them part-time work. People that I used to, you know, go out to restaurants with, with other friends who are just on the other side of the line, who are now looking to buy second and third properties in the Cape. And that was through no benefit or no like merit or no punishment on either side of the line. But that line was so unfair and that line cutting through friendship circles, cutting through peer groups, cutting through classes, if you want to put it that way, is what's going to accelerate social incohesion because we cannot tolerate that. That's not how our sort of mimetic species works. We can't right. tolerate right. losing. We don't mind if everyone else is losing. Unfortunately, I do like to say that envy does make the world go around. It seems to be the primary emotion behind everything. Whether you're talking about fear or greed underneath it, yeah. there's a whole lot of envy. And that is probably going to accelerate a lot of social disruption. Poor people wow. that have always been poor tend to accept their lot a lot more than someone who started out middle class and is falling. You can see this with even wealthy middle class educated elites that are not able to maintain their former living standard according to their peers. That's where social conflict really starts to break down. I think we're going to see a lot of those effects over the next 18 or so months. I, I totally agree with that. I think, I think that um, I mean, I, the, the one thing I would qualify on, on what you've just said is I actually think we can handle um, disparity quite well. And I even think we can handle quote unquote losing fairly well. I think humans who've been raised reasonably, you know, respectably can kind of handle that when it's just. Okay, just so you, when it's meritocracy. Correct. Oh, so, so, meritocratic. So, yeah. So when, when you, when you kind of win, if you, when you beat me fair and square, in, in the game of life, let's say you have the bigger house, yeah. the nicer situation, but like I can perceive that you've put in place wise practices and processes that I didn't really put in place. Most reasonably well-adjusted people don't actually mind that. I don't think that's the source of social conflict. I think the source of social conflict is injustice that creates inequality. It's the, it's the unfair manufactured inequality, manufactured man stuff, yeah. man-made <laughs> stuff. It's the, it's the unfair dimension to it and as you've pointed out you know you come into this um you happen to be a restaurant owner you know doing your best and you just get absolutely smashed you know um, and your brain's got an ad agency and he's doing just fine <laughs> and you exactly you yeah. see you see your friends who work in the finance sector in in, in the middle of santon and they're getting bonuses because the equity markets you know are up 30 percent right 
um, again, through no great skill of their, of their own. So, um, so no, this is, this is another way of describing the problem we've been talking about. And I tell you, I tell you what's really disconcerting to me is not only have we, so, so, so the, so most of this that we're talking about, I think has been avoidable, it's certainly in the last year, the, the, the COVID stuff, I think the way it's been dealt with the virus does what the virus does, but our response to it has um, been unfair. That's the line, you know, the line was some people unfair. were on choices massively that benefited unfair. some to the expense of others. There's a, yeah. And we do need to separate that. There's a natural disaster, which I think people again accept, you know, like yeah. some, some things are going to happen. Yeah. Some and, harms and, and are going to happen. But when, when those harms are unfairly distributed yeah. deliberately through policy choice, not through natural Correct. disaster, that's when resentment, resentments creep in. Well, a great, a great description of lockdown was, um, was making poor people work their jobs so that rich people could stay at home and be safe. Effect, yeah. I mean, I it mean, worked very well for some people. I mean, because, because, you know, you don't just lock down, you, you have to make stuff, you know, stuff has to get to the shelf so that you can go and buy it, uh, when you do your little outing to the shop. So, um, so yes, I mean, the, 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 as my one friend calls it, the laptop jockeys, we're able to just stay at home and, you know, we're probably in that class, able to work from home, able to continue to provide services to our clients online. In fact, in many ways, my life got a whole lot easier last year because um, I was able to be very efficient in the way I provided services. Clients enjoyed that. So, um, no, I think, now, now here's my concern. So, so we've done that. We've taken a sledgehammer to the complexity of the social order with things like lockdowns. I'm gravely concerned that we're about to do it again with something like vaccine uh, passes. And I, and I use the word pass rather than passport because I'm really worried that we are starting to develop a two-tier system internally in countries. Um, now it's in its early stages, but I mean, there are, we know for certain that there are loads of people who are keen for this kind of, this kind of regime. And so you're going to get people cut again across another, another dimension, people who don't want to take the vaccine, people who, you know, for whatever can't. reason, don't, don't think it can't, don't want to, don't get it, whatever. Um, and, and perhaps don't even need it because we know from a risk uh, distribution perspective that that young people uh, don't have a problem with COVID, and if anything, if they contract it, just build up natural immunity, which which probably stands them in good stead for the for the virus going forward. So, so, um, but I'm I'm really concerned. So we've seen this division come through with something like lockdown. Okay, this just cut through, as you say, families, class lines, you know, sectors, all this kind of stuff. Now we're we're, we're wrenching another another dividing line potentially through through medical interventions or through a kind of medical status um, that is going to cut through communities and families and sectors and so on in, in different ways. For political and so, reasons and for practical reasons, it's, a, it's a conflict point. Correct. And so I look at all this and, and I mean, I can see a whole, a whole bunch of other ones waiting in the wings of these, of these, these conflict generating interventions. And I got to say to myself, like, I don't see social cohesion improving in the next five, 10 years, right? I, I, can, I can see much better arguments for, for a decay in, in trust, in social cohesion generally. That's got to have 
production consequences. It's got to have consequences for economic exchange, for, for productivity, um, and then ultimately for policy and inflation. And again, I, a world that's getting more distrustful of itself and communities that are, that are getting more distrustful of themselves across very unfamiliar dimensions, that's got to induce lower productivity as far as I can tell. Um, so again, I mean, this is like kind of bearish and gloomy and, and, and pessimistic, but you know, you reap what you sow. And if you sow, if you, if you, if you approach a complex organism, which is a society and you take a crowbar and a sledgehammer to it, you must, you, you're going to expect certain consequences, right? That's what, that's what a lockdown is. It's a sledgehammer. It's, it's not, it's not a fine tuning instrument here, right? It's not like distributed risk management, you know, the, 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 the asymmetries in COVID risk are, are, are stark. Let's nuance the approach. You know, the Great Barrington Declaration was about nuanced approach. You can disagree with it, but it was aiming at pluralistic uh, uh, solutions. It's not one size fits all, guys. I mean, like, there's a reason why we have that cliche. One size does not fit all. That's, that's because it's true. Um, and my concern with the zeitgeist right now is that the ethic of conformity, centralization, sameness, one size fits all, uh, approved protocol, uh, gate kept solutions, you know, all this stuff, we've seen this in spades in the last 12 months. I mean, we've, we were seeing it before, but it really came to light in the last 12, 18 months. And to me, um, I think what people don't realize is that when you, because society is so actually plural, pluralistic and complex and different, when you try and impose one idea on everyone, you're going to create major divisions and conflicts. And uh, I just am really concerned that we're bounding down these roads and creating substantial conflict down the line. There is, uh, there is complexity being unleashed here that I don't think is, um, is, is well understood. And, and the last point on this, you know, you've got guys like Nassim Taleb, very smart guys who understand things like tail risk, mm. low probability, high impact events, right? Um, and so they looked at something like the virus and they said, well, you know, it's maybe a low probability that it's catastrophic, but if it is, it, you know, wipes out the planet or whatever. So we need to take certain actions. And my criticism of that type of precaution uh, is that the actions that have been taken themselves are subject to the kinds of complexity that, that Nassim Taleb was worried about with the virus, right? And in some ways, I mean, the virus is certainly a complex thing, but in some ways, the, the social uh, uh, systems that we are now tampering with globally across all these different di dimensions and spectra are, are arguably infinitely more complex and i think we've been blasé about how we have tampered with that complexity and that concerns me quite a lot yeah i think it's an important point to make there that you can be absolutely pro taking precautionary measures like doing social distancing but still legitimately have a problem with legally mandated one-size-fits-all lockdowns likewise yeah. you can be completely comfortable with medical interventions and with getting vaccines and even highly enthusiastic about such things but at the yeah. same time be highly skeptical about things like vaccine passes and vaccine passports because that's got nothing to do with medical science that's got only to do with social coercion 
So I think it's important to make that distinction because my perspective is those are good things. And in general, we should you know, applaud science when it does good stuff for us and absolutely go ahead and do what is best for ourselves and protect ourselves, protect our communities. But adding layers of coercion to that actually end up backfiring because as soon as yes. you have to force someone to do something that is in their own best interest, you unfortunately also unleash questions into that person's mind. That person thinks, if I'm a reasonable human being, I would have done this anyway. But now that I'm being told to do it, it makes me question whether it was in my best interest to start. I think that that's just, just human nature. Maybe that's just me. I don't, I don't know a lot of people no, so put I... a direct rule in place. You actually undermine the legitimacy of taking that responsible action for themselves. Of course, huge amount of criticisms come my way for these sorts of comments, but I don't think that I, I refuse to be pigeonholed into a box where someone's going to say that because I disagree with forcing someone to do something in their own best interest, that I do not agree with doing that good thing. I think we have to be able to separate mm, legality absolutely. from the actual act. I think that so many of these conversations are conflating those ideas and they're very, it's a very, very dangerous distinction. And a society that submits or encourages coercion for good things will also mm -hmm. unfortunately likely submit to coercion over bad things. It's a very slippery slope. And we have to be very, very careful about wielding law and policy as a blunt instrument and not respecting people as intelligent thinking. Absolutely. No, you, That's, of you, course, you... the grand irony with, with sort of, you know, collectivist versus more individualist thought, right? I mean, if we... If we are so stupid that we need someone to tell us what to do, then how can you trust us to choose the right person to tell us what to do? And isn't that person that's telling us what to do stupid too? <laughs> Conversely, if we are responsible, then we don't need to be told what to do. So it's right. an interesting no, look, conversation to be had there. But I'm so concerned with the way we're having these conversations mm -hmm. that you want to put people into political boxes, label people as being mm -hmm. anti-social good when you're just trying to criticize coercion over functioning we, we adults have, we have a lot of broken debates at the moment uh, vaccines is your quintessential broken debate um climate change is probably a broken debate uh, there's a few there's a few that we yeah, know you of. can't take a nuanced um, position you either for us or against us yeah and, and, and I, both look, of those I, are bad positions <laughs> i think i think you made a really good observation there which i was going to latch onto, which is just that um it's actually really sad because you you end up tainting what what could actually be celebrated. And by the way, this is a, this is kind of a classic example of a big turning event, right? We we fight over everything, even things that are ostensibly really great solutions. So like this vaccine, right? I mean, now it's got there's there's big question hey, marks. Over, <laughs> there's, there's big question marks over its long term safety because we simply can't know it yet. We don't know. And so there's an emergency authorization, and you've got to kind of take a risk right you if you're if you're old enough and the long-term stuff therefore doesn't maybe impact you as much and you're really worried about covid risks you know you can go ahead for someone emergency younger authorization was a good thing so it gave people the choice to take control over their own Correct. risk profile I mean, and i'm I mean, so pro-choice i think it's fantastic yeah. to be able to give people the 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 choice to choose their risk and to choose exactly. what they want to take on. I think that's fantastic. But we need to apply that same logic to, I suppose, other people who want to make different risk-based choices. And we so, can't so, judge people from a moral perspective for that. So what happens, what happens with something like vaccines is instead of celebrating a potentially really excellent breakthrough, Absolutely. Uh, we, end up, we end up having a fight. Um, but the fight is, is justified by um, people nudging coercing 
uh, forcing, vaccine passporting, you know, all this kind of stuff. The, as you point out, the minute you want to go there, then I'm like, I'm on the defensive. I'm a natural contrarian. I'm on the defensive. I'm going, whoa, 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 hang on a minute. Like that wasn't if, part if of If it the, was so good for me, why, why are you making me do it, if right? It, if it's so good for me, if it's so good for me, it's going to be super obvious. Um, if it's so good for you, don't worry about me, you know? Um, and there's all kinds of, there's all kinds of things one could get into on that. So I think, um, yeah, I think, I think this stuff is, is hugely significant. We've taken, we've taken a sledgehammer to, to the social order and we've done it in a very rapid short space of time. And a lot of people can't actually cope with that. Um, I think that this is another dimension of this is that, you know, societies change and evolve over time. We do have events throughout history that are step change events and a lot, a lot goes on in them. And, you know, if you go back and look at those periods of time, um, some people thrive through that and some people absolutely fall off the wagon, you know? Um, and I think, I think we're, my concern is that we're at risk of, of sort of doing that to ourselves in a very conscious way. Um, now, you know, um, I, you know, I would have hoped that we had the tools, the history, the understanding to sort of look at all this and go, right, guys, let's just slow things down a bit. Let's calm down. Let's allow organic, uh, uh, society to respond to a complex problem and to the various complex problems we have. Instead, we are trying to force everyone through the same little eye of the needle as it were. And, um, uh, that's just not going to, it's just not going to end well. I mean, to, to take vaccine, a vaccine pass system as one example, um, I think that has the potential to be probably the worst idea of our lifetimes, you know, to it's create. It's not just that. It's not, it's not just the, the vaccine passport. As soon as you got that sort of passport, it's a biometric passport and the opportunity for totalitarian abuse from wearing, Absolutely. if you just have any, any understanding of foresight or human nature, mm -hmm. it doesn't take much in imagination to see how such things get rolled out against our own good. So we have to separate the idea of, of the coercion yeah. from the act that we're trying hmm. to incentivize. Let, let alone how, how something like a, vac, like a biometric system can be linked completely into a digital currency system uh, can be linked. You know, so now, now you can track Complete someone's health Wi-Fi <laughs> you, can, you, can, you can track someone's spending. Are they carbon compliant in the way that they, you know, uh, express their tastes yeah, and preferences? We've already got those popping up in Europe, carbon credit um, scores for employees. Yeah. And, and, and we know that um, a lot of what China has done, the West, Western governments greatly admire. I mean, they might not admire the, the hyper-centralized authoritarian kind of nature of it, but they certainly find social credit scoring, techn technological convergence across all these dimensions very interesting and compelling from a, from a, a population management perspective, from a power acquisition perspective, from a technocratic sort of uh, desire. Um, these things are all, I think, very interesting to, to um, a certain elite ruling class. Um, and it, you don't even have to posit a, a big, scary, sinister conspiracy theory about this stuff. It's just some people see this as a very uh, compelling way of efficient governance, right? They, they, don't, they don't view it necessarily in the way that you're, with the suspicion that, that you or I might view it. So so, I mean, part of the challenge here is that we've got a lot of people acting in good faith in a way, but I think just with really big historical blinkers on and not quite seeing the, the bigger picture on this thing. So 
yeah, I think I think this is all um, super concerning, and 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 I, you know, for me, um, I just I think we have to fight from an activistic perspective. You know, we speak about positive and normative uh, perspectives on the world. We, we we can describe the world as it as it is, and it's a little bit bleak. From a normative perspective, we can start to think about how we would want to reform and change things. We've got to be really intelligent on this because there's there's a whole lot of social layers that we've got to try and try and cut through on this to 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 reach uh, a place where we can agree on on, on something very constructive. Um, certainly, I would hope that appealing to people that because you know there's there's a lot of people gung ho for not just vaccines, which is absolutely fine, but but for a passport system because they feel threatened in various ways. And I hope we can convince people and talk people back from that ledge. Uh, because once we go over that ledge, um, I think it's going to be extremely difficult to unwind. Um, and you could have a large plurality of society who doesn't, who chooses not to get vaccinated, for example, um, basically increasingly shut out or adopting a, or just moving into a different tier of existence. And I just don't see this as being healthy in any way. I hope I'm over-exaggerating. I hope I, I'm I over could even add another layer to it. I think if there are people that need the vaccine, that would benefit from it from a quantifiable sort of cost benefits perspective, yeah. that are hesitant yeah. to get it because of threats of things like vaccine passports. Yeah, like, it's, I'm it's, happy to get the shots. I'm not happy to get my name on your database. I'm not happy to carry your card. And I think mm -hmm. that that is an elephant in the room that people that are wanting this pandemic just to be over, that's what people mm -hmm. really want. I completely understand why people are accommodating of more coercive ideas, anything to get us out of this, anything to get us back out into nature and back traveling to whatever we were doing as millennials or whatever else on Instagram, yeah. anything to get our lives back. And I think that they don't understand that by forcing people, by encouraging any sort of degree of coercion to creep into conversations of things of this nature, they're yeah. actually probably undermining their own cause. It's just bad marketing. It's 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 sort it's of the bad marketing. <laughs> and 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 isn't it the isn't it the classic security freedom uh, sort of trade-off? You know, like you if you adopt, I mean, this is this is. You know, one of the one of the brilliant features, one of the one of the brilliant strategies of totalitarian programs is to sow fear, right? Is to sow the idea of threat, create create threats, create as many as you can, and sell a central authority as the solution. Um, and this is how you can enslave a lot of people. Uh, and I mean, this is not again. You know, this is just like pretty standard history. I mean, within our, within our, maybe not our lifetimes, but certainly within the lifetimes of our parents or grandparents, we've had you know mega totalitarianism. I mean, the Soviet Union only ended you know in in the late eighties. Um, so, so like this is this is contemporary history, you know. And we're kind of, I feel like we're making we so have many short of, memories because we didn't short really memories. live I mean, through I mean, it. We I mean, don't want to talk about it. Yeah. One of my friends on, on, on Twitter the other day said, you know, I've, I, I've heard about not learning from history, but like this is not learning from last week. You know, I mean, this is this is super recent and contemporary history that we're just sort of throwing aside. So um, 
yeah, very concerned about the, the safety culture that is being generated here. Really concerned about children being raised in a hyper safety culture and just the kinds of citizens that they're likely to be. Um, I don't know what that's going to look like. Do they rebel at some point and go absolutely 180 from the other side? Certainly possible. Do they become very compliant adults and, and sort of just aid and abet ongoing, you know, the ongoing nudging state and the nudging oligarchy, as Ben Hunt would, would call it? Um, I, I don't know where this all ends up, but uh, what I do know is that I can try and lend my shoulder to the wheel a little bit and hope in helping change people's minds. And I can conduct my own life and, and raise my children in a particular way that tries to create balance and a bit of perspective on everything. Um, and, you know, that healthy, that healthy degree of, uh, of contrarianism that I think we all need a little bit these days. Yeah, I think at the moment, the world is, has a mm. contrarianism shortage. Although you've got a lot of TM brand contrarians with the capital C who just disagree with anything, which is also not very contrarian when you actually get right down to it, right? So you don't want to be a contrarian for contrarian's sake, but rather, right. I think it's not even about being a contrarian. It's about actually having values that you've sat down as a fully functional adult human being and thought about and not compromising those values based on, you know, as the zeitgeist shifts from left to right, up and down. Yeah what being a contrarian is, is standing still when everyone else is switching positions. <laughs> I don't yeah, think that's, that's my definition anyway. If, 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 I've if had these conversations about, with a few people. If you, if you think about um, what internet world has, has created, I mean, look, it's, it's, a, it's, a, bit of a, it's a bit of both. It's, it's created, it's shown us this immense diversity of thought on the one hand. On the other hand, it's, it's kind of, caused us all to converge into fairly homogenous patterns of thinking, right? Like it caused one... us to merge into caricatures. So you've got a caricature set. It's yeah, not yeah. one homogenous group, but it's a it's a couple of yeah. sort of like a sort of a, a nesting doll set. You can pick one, pick one or two or three of these avatars. And that's correct. Yeah, that's true. And 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 um and then and then there's certain things that certainly from a mainstream perspective, you know, there's only one acceptable opinion to have there's only one acceptable opinion about black lives matter there's only one acceptable opinion about about covid there's only one acceptable opinion about x y and z um and so i think the next big challenge and probably the gyrations that we're going through now is is the shattering of that a little bit is the is the rediscovery of truly diverse thinking um uh, and that's, we're probably feeling the birth pangs of that a little bit because there's a lot of powerful people um, who benefit substantially from the groupthink. You know, it's, again, it's not a conspiracy. It's just, it's just incentives, you know, as, you know, show me the incentive and I'll show you the action as, as I think you like to say. So, um, so there's a lot of people who, who benefit substantially from a particular way of thinking about the climate. Like, for example, we know that there's, massive industry around this there's there's a consulting industry around this there's a green subsidy uh, the esg boon, stock boon scams boon from the, <laughs> the investment exactly. funds there's, that are petro companies rebranded as esg all this stuff yes. i mean it's many it's, many it's, terrible incentives it's, it's a huge bandwagon and and just having that shattered open not that 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 the views that drive that then suddenly become illegitimate and, and no one thinks about them just that there's another 10 views that you can now adopt or 400 views that you can now adopt on that, on that particular issue because it's highly complex. 
and that of course begins to smash open some of these scams these you know these these uh these grift uh scams that we that we see in some of these things um it starts to break those open and that's another part of the process of of breaking down this oligarchification of society of the finance sector of the economy of all this kind of stuff and that's why in the final analysis i think that we're going through a period now that's very ugly it's not pretty it's it's contentious it's angry it's limit exhausting um it's all these things <laughs> um but I, I i kind of feel like it's it's the necessary uh pain that we've got to be going through to produce and if i may be slightly uh hegelian here to produce a kind of synthesis on the other side that is workable that is sustainable that is peaceful that is cooperative uh the world's basically just gotten into a frenzy it needs to thrash around and work that frenzy out and and then we get to somewhere better and there's no guarantees in the interim of how bad uh that could be you know historically these sorts of turnings um they can be mild or they can be exceedingly ugly um and we've just and got to be kind drawn of, out or they can be short and they, sharp they, they, they can be drawn out and you know um i suspect we're quite far into this turning already um but what is what is 10 or 15 years on uh, on the long timeline of history right it's a it's a it's a blip so um so it's it's quite possible that for a very long time yet to come we have to manage a world going through very profound uh, uh tensions divisions reconfigurations you know all this kind of stuff um in in ways that you know it would be easy for a skeptic watching this this conversation to say well isn't that history isn't that just what happens normally um and, and i don't think so i think i mean clearly there's always change change is a, is a constant but but i think the kinds of changes we're experiencing the sort of crowbar sledgehammer that's being taken to the social order the change of certainly in my lifetime what i've known the world order to be um that's all kind of unraveling in in very complicated ways in my mind uh whether it's monetary whether it's political whether it's cultural we're going through a kind of a cultural revolution right now that's very difficult to to understand and to grapple with um you know so, so on just on just multiple dimensions i think it's fairly obvious to me that we're that we're experiencing something unusual um it doesn't mean that it's never happened in history before i just think it's 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 a less common sort of epoch that we're in compared to the day-to-day -day sort of gyrations yeah history happens in, in sort of bursts and starts there are sort of you know yeah. decades where nothing <clears throat> happens and then like a few weeks when a whole lot does and you know stress yeah. points on history do tend to accelerate any sort of change and i don't think you can think of a bigger stress point than a sort of entire world on pause for a year where we all get to sort of reflect our place in the world and what comes next and we don't think that's going to lead to some dramatic changes i think we haven't learned much yeah i i think that i think that to be unaware of that is to really have your head in the sand um so i look i think most people i think that's probably a mainstream view right now that most people think well you know this has happened in 2020 the world's changing uh great reset you know build back better uh you know end of the world apocalypse Every, everyone's got their view on how it's going to change profoundly very few people i think 
think that we're just going to sail through this into something normal. Maybe that's, maybe that's an opinion we need to take a bit more seriously because maybe we overhype the change, but be that as it may. It's, it's not really about different, but about getting to where we were going a little bit faster from yeah. my perspective. I think yeah, that no, a lot I, of the things I, you're talking about, so. you can trace it back really to the Nixon era. I think that's when things really started falling apart, or at least when the, when the, when the, when the turn started turning and it's been turning for, for quite a long time. Yeah, so, so I think, I think 2020 uh, certainly I think was an accelerant, you know, pre 2020, I wrote some articles for clients called um, the, I think I called it global scarcity or 2020s, the decade of scarcity or something. This was pre COVID. Um, and I already felt that we were moving into a phase of, of scarcity for a lot of the reasons that I've described in this, in this conversation so far. And then COVID came along and, and seemed to just, squash five years maybe even maybe even 10 years probably five years or so into into one you know i think we i think we really raced ahead uh, last year in terms of this this change and this transition that we're going through in some ways and, and maybe that's where we can think about accelerationism a little bit um, there's something to be said for for getting things done quicker right if your country is going to have a failed state let's say which is a relevant topic for South Africans. Um, if you're gonna, if you're gonna live, if you're gonna experience the failure of a state, <clears throat> would you want it to happen over twenty years um, or over one? Um, now, I mean, there's lots to unpack in a question like that. But the the, the benefits of the one year failure are kind of like the benefits of the of the rapid uh, bankruptcy, you know, the rapid liquidation. We get it done, we sell off the assets, we learn our lessons, and we kind of move on. The slow zombified sort of decay, where you never quite die, but you never quite live, um, is a is a is a huge consumer of capital over time. It consumes energy, lives in terms of lifespans lived in in this zombie process. It creates ongoing social conflicts. Uh, there's just so many ways in which I, I see the prolonged process um, as, as um, suboptimal. Um, now, there's counterpoints to that because in the longer process, you have time. You have time to pivot. You have time to sort of prepare. You have time to do various things. But I think we're at a point now in South Africa's history where I feel like we're all kind of hoping, not in a catastrophic way, but we're hoping for things to move along a bit. Yeah? Like, like let's, let's flush out the bad let's let's have that cathartic event quickly uh, and and sort of figure out how to move on from there and i think that's probably true of what most of the world is feeling like there's there's a sense of of really unbearable sort of purgatory about a lot of a lot of what's going on uh, there's a sense of a price that has to be paid and that's you can either that you've got some people that are trying to push that price or that bull that reckoning further down the road and there's yeah. others that are preferred to pay it now, take the hits and then move on. I think that's coming back to the whole conversation around inflation. That's what you're really talking about. So Zimbabwe happened right. sort of catastrophically very quickly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was a, a, in, in economic sort of time, time scales, it was a pretty fast unraveling of, a, of an economy. Yeah. Whereas what's happening with the dollar is a slow, slow erosion of wealth. It's a slow steal. Yeah. But it's it not, is. it's no less of a crime just because you're taking a, a few coins out right. of the jar every week, as opposed to sort of just running off with the whole piggy bank, which is kind of what, what Zimbabwe tried to do. 
So it's a less dramatic story, but it's no less devastating. And that's why there perhaps is an argument that if we look 50 years into the future, that Zimbabwe might have a, a more optimistic generation, you know, in two yeah. generations time than what America might. And that's, that's, I think, the real conversation. It's not about scaring people right now mm. in the United States about scary inflation, because that's where these conversations, just like the, the vaccine question or the lockdown question, unravel into, into nonsense very, very quickly, because no mm -hmm. one can actually talk about what they're really talking about. It's like, you're wrong. It's, there's not hyperinflation. You know, in fact, this, this piece of steak, people are posting pictures on Twitter is, is like $2 cheaper than it was last year. That proves yeah. there's no inflation. It's not about that. It's about, is there a theft going on? Is there a bill that's going to have to be paid? Is there a debt that is going to have to be reconciled? And those are, those are facts. We can Correct. kick cans. But sooner Correct. or later, someone's got to pay for the deal. I mean, like once, they, once the cake is eaten, there is no more cake. <laughs> you've, said, you, you've, you've laid that out super well. And just to, just to kind of warm to that team very briefly, like you can, you can play with economic data from now until next Tuesday. And, and you know, smart people, can, smart people can cherry pick and show. I mean, you know, I, I analyze data for my clients for a living and I've done this for a long time. You, you, can, you can tell stories. With Numbers data. are very pliable. Numbers are pliable. Um, so, but, but like, you know, how good was Obama's presidency? You know, cause, cause the, the, the narrative on that, it was amazing, right? Obama was just, wow. Well, Obama's presidency was so good that, that, the, that like half the country was radically compelled to vote for Trump, you know? <laughs> um, and, and Trump's presidency was so good that the, the, that like Antifa rioters went absolutely mad um, through the course of 2020, you know, um, across the cities in America, like the social forces and, and the, and the political forces that, that play out in reality are way stronger indicators than, than data that can be kind of manipulated on how much a stake costs today versus, versus yesterday or whatever. And I just think that to me, it's unmistakable that as we look across the globe, we have got conflict, uh, I'm not saying it's, it has to be this way. I think it's being largely manufactured. It's being pushed in this direction because of perpetuation of bad policies, perpetuation of unjust systems, as you precisely pointed out. Um, and so what, like from an, from an economist's perspective and, and just from a general analyst's perspective, from a futurist's perspective, you want to be um, broadening the, let's call it the epistemic range of of insights right you, you, you it's not just what did gdp do last quarter you know it's like what are we seeing in the social fabric here? how many calls for secession are there in the united states uh, amongst different states you know um uh, how divided is that electorate i mean if you look at if you look at various metrics of division i mean it's, it's super divided way more than it's ever been why is that going on um, and then, and then, you know, all sorts of other dimensions. So, so the, the dysfunction of the system, you know, there's a lot of guys who want to talk about how great the world is getting lots of, you know, I mean, uh, and, and I admire this because some of the data is real. It's, it's, I mean, a lot of their data is, is legit, um, you know, showing human progress, showing how, how, how poverty has been reduced over the last 30, 40 years, you know, showing how much better life is getting on so many dimensions. Um, a lot of that is absolutely valid. A lot of it is obscuring of some of this kind of insidious 
uh, uh, cancer that is growing and metastasizing in a lot of countries, you know? So we have this sort of outward display of some kind of material uh, prosperity in whatever way, shape or form. Um, but beneath it, you know, suicide rates are like climbing rapidly. <laughs> uh, drug addictions are off the charts. You know, there's, there's a darkness lurking there that is easy to suppress in a lot of the, the top level data. But when you really look at some of that stuff, honestly, uh, look at the not trends, in, yeah. What no, the direction? In, where are we moving from? Where not, to? To correct, where? Yeah. Where's correct. that pointing? We're not, we're not in great shape. And like quickly on this, like a lot of people will say with South Africa, like why are you so gloomy? Compare South Africa to wh what it was in the 1990s or 94. Compare the average, you know, life of the Black South African, the Black South African, you know, now versus then, and that's valid. Um, yes, there's been an improvement, but then you say to them, but but it have depends which dates you pick. Yes, sure. but, end but of so, apartheid so, is fantastic. It helps a lot. But yeah. if you're picking the last 20 years, we've had a problem. And there's right. a, that's a different conversation. Again, you can get drawn into disgusting arguments that are not about what you're actually talking about. At some point, the trend turned. It stopped getting better and it started getting exactly. worse. And why did exactly. that happen? And when did that happen? Being honest yeah. about that is the only way to fix anything. Exactly. No, 100%. 100%. And, so, and so I think... Um, I think being being sort of honest and and rational about the trends about the data um, and this isn't easy for everyone because people get emotionally tied to stories and we all do i do too you do we all do to try and emotionally detach a little bit because um you know a lot of people bought into the new south africa story for all the right reasons and for some of the wrong reasons but whatever it was it was like this is absolutely amazing 10 years in it starts to change. It starts to morph. Uh, a new reality, an emergent reality comes in and, and the track record, whatever you want to say about it, we don't have to get into all the politics. The track record ain't good. You know, South Africa's gone at, at the very least sideways for a very long time and probably regressed in, on a whole bunch of dimensions. Um, and a lot of people misdiagnose why. I think it's generally accepted that that's happened there was denial of that for a while and the odd person tries to deny it still, but basically, you know, there's been no progress of any material sort. And then trying to Some diagnose. Of the things that matter, not for the young people, not for correct. getting children to be able to be literate, not with getting jobs yeah. and opportunities for young people yeah. to get a share in the economy. We're talking to Charles Davidge just on the, the last episode of this. And yeah. you know, it's about, you have to get people, you have to get people invested in the upside of the economy mm. in order to get, them to buy into society really yeah yeah i mean we, yeah, so, we failed at that so so i mean if you look if you look across a number of regions of the world uh things have gone sideways for actually a very long time sideways or worse europe europe is kind of like that um the last 20 years have been the epoch of zimbabwe and venezuela and i mean yes they're just two countries but they're two substantial countries you know venezuela's what 30 30 40 million people somewhere thereabouts i guess I mean, that's, it's been an utter calamity. Um, Argentina hasn't been fantastic. Brazil hasn't been fantastic. They're a slow disaster, not a fast one. Argentina. Yeah, um, and so, and South Africa has, has joined that mix. America, top line numbers have kind of looked reasonably good. The gloss, you know, the S&P 500 is higher, um, you know, all these kinds of things. But as I say, drug, drug addiction, suicide rates, political divisions, um, 
just just all kinds of things life expectancy going down in the united states and a lot of in a lot of states um so so and, and then asia i mean you know asia is a mixed bag you know um some absolutely dynamic places that are that have been going ahead tremendously well in other instances um uh, a place like china again top line numbers huge demographics massive population but in the last 10 years politically you know it's regressed it's, you know substantially um and and so you can kind of go through a lot of places it's gloomy in a sense but it's i think it's important just to be honest about the fact that hey man history history is not this beautiful linear upline that just uh that just carries on we have we have serious periods of regression um of decay of capital consumption of injustice of conflict um i think we're in one of those now i think it's important to recognize that and not kind of try and gloss over things yes poverty rates have fallen because india stopped being socialist and china opened up its markets and and you know that's wonderful i'm glad that those things happened but let's not pretend that it's all just kind of hunky-dory globally you know the the west in particular um and and south africa as a sort of quasi derivative of the west if you like um and southern africa quite frankly in real in real bad shape uh and i think the sooner we can get honest about why um you know the better because then we can really start to to move on and construct things and so for me without being sort of uh fatalistic or or, or nihilistic about it um i kind of i'm in the accelerationist camp bronwyn you know i i, I sort of want to see things decaying fast because so I like, they can get better again quicker <laughs> so they can get better again so quicker try again and, try again and and you know when 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 you do the slow decay um you you sort of consume up all the capital it can be it can be the most devastating kind of decay whereas the the quick psychologically thing, a long war is much more destructive mm, than a than a absolutely. short battle yeah absolutely so uh, i i would like to see us getting through this quickly how that happens i don't know because of course political incentives are are generally aligned to to hang on and cling on and kick the can and and sort of avoid the calamity because that's career suicide for politicians and so on so you know we we do find ourselves in this in this kind of stalemate a little bit the stasis and this kind of slow degradation and i suppose uh the the upside or the silver lining is that uh you get acceleration accelerational events like a covid which um no one's asking for but if they come and they get a certain reaction it can push things along a bit and i think it's pushing I think this has pushed our societal consciousness in a direction where it's like hang on a minute institutions are not what we thought they were there's a lot to distrust about what's going on and people are starting to i think take proactive steps in relation to that realization you know building their own institutions building their own alternative platforms you know i think you've often said um you know if 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 you don't own the platform you don't own your service right so what is what does decentralizing platforms look like what does the decentralized secure internet look like um so that you can't be deplatformed and canceled and all these kinds of things not a not a easy process but ultimately surely healthy for the, for for the long term uh for our long term kind of existence so 
again, I, well, something's I, I got to give eventually. And, and no, no yeah. institution, whether it's a virtual commercial platform or whether it's a, a government that gets too big, sooner or later these things implode upon their own size. I mean, nothing scales yeah. perfectly. And yeah. yes, yeah. <laughs> eventually things break when they get too big. So, so, so broad principle here, uh, so that I don't sort of chew the hind leg of a donkey for too much. Broad principle is um, for a host of reasons, which is a whole nother sort of podcast, uh, we've gotten to a place, we've discussed some of the reasons now, we've gotten to a place where we're in bad shape and we need to get through this as quickly as possible, learn the right lessons from it. And I think, I think this these travails that the world's going through can set us up. And, and I think ultimately will set us up for a very good period afterwards. You know, if the long span of history is any guide, this is going to end well. Okay. Yeah. Being, being bearish on long-term history is not a smart play. Okay. No, likewise being overly optimistic about the short term can be naive. Yeah. I yeah. completely agree with you. Long-term mm -hmm. optimist, short-term mm -hmm. realist, let's say. Yeah, and I think that's I think that was Murray Rothbard's great quip. He was like, "I'm permanently bearish on the short term, and I'm permanently bullish on the long term." <laughs> and I think I'll be that's right at right. least half of the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's where we are. Thank you very much. That was a very long conversation. So, do you want to have any closing comments? Anything you want to explain or elaborate or clarify? If not, I, let I people wanna, know where to find you. Yeah, I don't want to put your your listeners or your viewers through through much more pain. Um, there's a, there's enough pain out there in the world at the moment. Um, yeah, look, I mean, in terms of my own trajectory, I'm I'm moving across to a business advocacy group. So I'm moving out of hardcore kind of analysis for professional investors from a which is a more positivist uh, description strategy role, which I've thoroughly enjoyed but i'm changing pace and and just tech and moving into a more kind of activistic and normative space to to actually try and influence um, the trajectory of policy to help our members at sakelicha to develop uh, smart state proofing strategies to be resilient um, so yeah to to kind of get my hands a little bit more dirty on on kind of practical strategies around uh, to, to to navigate the world that we're in so um i'm looking forward to that um watch the space i start in september i've got a lot to learn in that new space i've got a gr some great colleagues to work with but uh yeah i look forward to that um and uh that's what i'm up to thanks so much for your time and i like the way that you've done that starting with understanding the world first doing the work there before you get into trying to change it i think that's there's too many perhaps individuals and institutions that have no empirical understanding of the world they attempt to change with their ideas. So at least you've done it the right way around. Hopefully you'll well, have more success. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> I, I, I'm under no illusions as to the, as to the, the size of the task, um, but I'm, I'm one extra shoulder to the wheel, let's say. So hopefully that works. Thank you so much for your time.